right, guys, we are back with another Friends of Medicine podcast behind the scrubs. And I'm very excited today to introduce you to these amazing physicians who are here to share some of the triumphs and challenges of women in healthcare. That's the topic for today. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us and providing some of insight based on your experience and some data that we have to share with you today. And I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Mecker Moeller with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And what do you us. do for a living, Dr. Moeller? I am an academic surgical oncologist. Wow, that's amazing. I, I applaud you for your work and I appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome, Dr. Arshad. Hi, my name is Sabrina Arshad and I'm a medical intensivist. Awesome. I'm looking forward to hearing some data from you today. <laughs> Sulin? Hi, I'm Sulin Walker, and I'm an emergency room physician. Awesome. So ladies, we want to dive right into it. There's a lot to cover, and there are a lot of pressing issues that, you know, people talk about, but there's no actionable solution that we can actually take to a body and make some changes. So, you know, what is the number one issue, in your opinion, that affects women in the healthcare industry? Sexual harassment. Really? Mm. It's that bad. It is and it's terrible. And it's also swept under the rug a lot of times in many instances. So the awareness is not there. Can you give us some, do you have any data to support? I do. Awesome. Well, the Harvard Business Review published an article in 2019 that talked about what predisposes an organization or an industry to have increased sexual harassment. And basically it's the idea of having a hierarchy having and having an organization that is predominantly male dominated mm -hmm. medicine is just that right. you have this hierarchy especially in training in medical school right there's data that suggests that 50 percent of all medical students female medical students are going to be sexually harassed or assaulted at some 50%. point percent 50 percent and wow. probably 33 percent of all female physicians going from intern all the way to attending is going to be uh, sexually harassed or assaulted at some point. And it just gets swept under the rug. You know, it's disparaging comments, uh, belittling comments against women, mm -hmm. and then just outrageous, sexist, vulgar speech. And and in your opinion or your experience and, and talking in your community, is this getting worse, better? It's, nothing is being done about it. It's the same old, or is it like something that is like urgent and needs immediate attention? I think, I think it's been around since women entered medicine right. and no one's really doing anything about it because it's such a boys club, even though 50% of medical students right now are female. That's what I was about to say, because, you know, I've been looking at the data over the years and women are the majority in many fields right now. In fact, uh, Dr. Walker could share with us, you know, she works at an institution that has uh, female leadership, you know, yes. one, one in the entire country. We right. have um, a medical chair who's a female, which is only 9% of all the programs in the country have that. And uh, met a program director female as well. So we are very heavy female oriented at our program. We also have more than the average female attendings in our department um, at about 37% females. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So it seems like in some places, the ratio is translating into leadership, finally, at least. This is an anomaly, though. Our, our program is an anomaly, especially in the Southeast um, and in the South, which is found to have lower percentages of women in these roles. We do see women increasing in residencies in a lot of these still male-dominated fields, but it's still not the majorities. It's still not the higher percents. And even though we do have them in leadership roles, 
the leadership roles are almost abysmal. Like I mentioned, 9% in the whole country. Um, and it's hard because how do you get those changes when you don't have people already in those positions to continue right. to move forward? And, and I think that's a problem that is no intrinsic just to one of the subspecialties of medicine because in surgery, we have very few female women's share for department of surgeries in the country. And it's such a minority. And still women make a small percentage of the workforce. We are about 30% of the entire workforce of surgeons in the country. So in that minority is no measure to the same, with the same stick of the men. There's so much microaggressions mm -hmm. that happen on the daily, day to day in the operating room, sometimes by the way the patients perceive you, sometimes by the nurses perceive you. And interesting, most, a lot of these microaggressions happen sometimes from the nursing staff to female surgeons. Mm -hmm. And the others are, you know, when you come to uh, the scale of leadership positions, right? So then you see that the women are starting to decrease in percentages to get into those roles. So even though there is wonderful data out there demonstrating that the patients that are cared by female surgeons actually have better outcomes than by male surgeons, and still women have to prove themselves every day in every place they are to show they are as good as men and you have to be better in order to be considered equal. And it's not just the surgical specialties, right? There has been plenty of data published that if you get care by a female physician, regardless of specialty, your outcomes are going to be better. So what do you think the, the main message should be to a young female medical student or resident out there that wants to climb the ranks and, you know, it's brilliant, you know, very hardworking and has the opportunities those barriers that exist right now, what advice do you have for those young women out there facing those barriers that they may not even know exist? You know, um, when I was a fellow, I was lucky enough to be in a fairly large academic institution that had very strong female leadership in the Department of Critical Care. And there's not, usually critical care falls in, under the Department of Medicine, and this was its freestanding department. And they created a lot of mentorship for mm female trainees, not just within critical care, but I think that's what's lacking. I think what we need is is a lot of mentorship, helping young women who are entering this field navigate these shark infested waters right. and how to build their careers without compromising. And I think in addition to mentorship, a sponsorship is extremely important Absolutely, because you can have a mentor, but if you don't have a sponsors, it's very difficult for your name to be put forward into, you know, there is this uh, committee, there is this opportunity for this leadership or this position just open. Ex and you need expa that. Expand on the sponsorship process for our listeners who may not be familiar with. Well, you know, the mentor is somebody that, that guy you can, you know, somebody that you, you can come to it and give you guidance, right? Through, through your career or personal things that you're dealing at that moment. And there is also coaching that is not necessarily the same as mentor. Coaching mm -hmm. is going to help you to understand help you understand what's going on and, and guide you through that. But the mentor is somebody you look up to, somebody that will see your gift and try to, to support you on that. But the sponsor doesn't necessarily need to be your mentor. The sponsor can be a person that recognizes your value and gives you know, the opportunity for your name to be put forward into these opportunities that may come either at the national level or at your own institution. Right. 
And we find a lot of difficulty with that, because if you think about what we were talking about before, how few leaders we have in emergency medicine, in surgical subspecialties and in the critical care that are female, how are we getting our name out there? How are the few that are out there, you know, doing that sponsorship? So it's kind of a snowball effect, because if you don't have enough people in leadership to be sponsors, to reach out to other you know, programs, you can understand. I mean, for those of us in healthcare, getting a phone call from previous program director, a good friend that you've met before saying, hey, I have this person applying who's a rock star, means a lot more than anything you would read on paper. But how do we do that when we don't even have the women in the leadership roles to make those calls or you know, to advocate and to sponsor us? And that's why when you are in those positions, it's so important to make sure that we are doing that. Even more so, I think it's also important to include our male colleagues in this. They need to realize the struggles and advocate for us as well, because we're all a community. Yes. And so unless we make them aware of what's going on, um, many people don't realize the struggles that we're facing or the need for that sponsorship or the need for that advocacy. So making them aware of it, I think, makes a huge difference in, in their role in this as well. So I don't think this is only a women's role. This is a community role. Absolutely. Right. And for I sure. think you, you actually nail it right there because... We for, for years and years, we had been pushing to the choir, right? We talk about it. We know what the problems are, but the people outside of our being women in medicine don't understand the hurdles and how we are being measured different than they are, right? right yeah. So it's extremely important to have that support also from, from the male colleagues and the Association of Women Surgeons and the American College of Surgeons have a movement right now that is called He for She. And is you know Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the, the he for she it has been very good because it's, it's demonstrating that many of these issues is not just because you are women, but this is because we are you know competent people and taking care of patients and surgery that deserve to be treated with equality. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of this promotion of in these committees when they're making sure that we are working actively instead of having just a, what we call a manual, right? When you're at to a conference and everybody is just males on the panel that we've that right. they find women's experts on that topic that are also Adequate part of that representation. Panel. There is representation have a seat at the table also. Exactly. Of course, we have. I mean, almost every hospital has you know boards of medical staff from before, and those boards inevitably are very um, specific with what kind of people are in these photos. And to say it's minority females is not a true statement at all. It's the total opposite. And how do we get minority females? How do we get females? How do we get minorities? How do we represent ourselves in these groups? How do we become the tops of hospitals? How do we get a seat at the table? I think becomes really big. Yes. So we had a, a dinner, a roundtable dinner last year for National Women's Physician Day, and we had some very interesting discussions and really opened up uh, a lot of our minds to the challenges that the average woman physician faces throughout her career from medical school right up until she becomes the chair of the department, you know. And uh, part of that discussion was uh, involving uh, uh, like lobbyists to to go to the the different committees at a national level etc and get these voices heard and bring more awareness and i think through collaboration with organizations like friends of medicine and american college of surgeons and their initiatives when when we come together as different groups we can have more of an impact at that level so i think you're right on that um is there anything else or any other committee or organization that our listeners can uh reach out to to either volunteer their services or you know, have a discussion, get involved. What can we do to actually make some kind of actionable change? So the American Medical Association has a women in medicine section. And 
if you are a female and you are a member of the American Medical Association, you are automatically part of the women in medical medicine section and they will reach out to you. They again, they provide a lot of resources. One of the things that they're doing is they're they're championing for better lifestyles for women, especially women who are pregnant, have been pregnant or mothers mm -hmm. to allow for better lifestyles because most especially in medicine, nobody provides maternal leave. Right. I don't even get PTO. Right. If I if I get sick, I'm screwed for lack of a better word. Allowing for championing for women to achieve positions in leadership, teaching women how to self-promote themselves. Because I think that's a challenge. We're not taught properly how to promote ourselves gracefully. So you think like programs need to be set up to actually coach and actively get women involved in these issues? Absolutely. Suli and I here are trying to set up something at our hospital where we have a basically a, a women in medicine section of in our hospital to mentor and promote and sponsor our female trainees and anybody else, APPs, whoever else feels like they need their voice heard. Well, I'm sure that the Friends of Medicine Foundation members would be happy to be involved in that. You yourself being a member of our organization, you know, you can reach out to us and, and let the others know that, hey, there's an opportunity here. And then other hospitals, we can collaborate with the Absolutely. University of Miami and Cleveland Clinics and all of these other institutions. But it's so true what you said, because, you know, they, they have been established, you know, when a male is, they see a position to apply for and... They feel they are competent enough for that position and the women tend to second guess themselves. And I don't have the data right now in front of me where the study came from, but it uh, was very revealing mm -hmm. that how we women tend to underestimate our achievements. Imposter and, syndrome. Yeah, the imposter yeah. syndrome. And we tend to, you know, think, oh, no, I need to be this, this, this to, to get to that, to that position. And males tend to like think like, I don't have that, but I, I must still can get it, you know. So it's the, this self-assurance that we need to instill and women since they are young, since they, I think they are going through uh, high school and help them to see themselves the, into the medical field if that's something that they want mm -hmm. and that they can carry through college and then to to a specialty and to become, uh, you know, attending physicians. So I think we need to start with that very early on, not to wait until the students are in medical school. Right. Because many times at that level, they're having had, the, I would say, role models to make them think that they can achieve that. Right. And I think something that like you say, you know, it should be a start very early on and bring women like that to high schools, to places when these girls can see themselves as successful as you are. Right. A mindset shift needs to occur at exactly. an earlier stage and a support system needs to be promoted more so that when they get there and life hits, you know, unfortunately, pregnancies can happen, divorce, you know, single mom, it's tough. You know, a lot of our female colleagues experience things that we as men will never experience. And, you know, the journey and the challenges are so much more magnified. If there is a support system that they know of from early on and a mindset shift from even before they get into medical school, then probably as they progress through, the confidence will be there to sit at the table and say, listen, I deserve to be here. And these, is, these are the changes that we're going to make moving forward. So I think you're right. It needs to occur very early. And I think having men also that are champions for women in medicine at the table would help also, you know, this whole collaborative effort, I think, is the way we should go with this. And, and as I said before, Friends of Medicine Foundation is very 
involved and we'll be happy to work with you in the individual institutions and our members that are there come together and we, we do something you know and I think it's so important, even in medical school. I mean, we've all experienced, I'm sure, walking into a room and the patient puts down the phone and says, the nurse is here. Or when can I speak to the real doctor? Or for myself, when I work with female residents, the patients complain that they haven't seen a doctor at all during their visit, even after we've done procedures, which amazes me that they think nurses are doing. Um, and it's it's only so much scrutiny, sure. only so much questioning, only so much evaluation in society that you can take before you start questioning yourself. And I think a big part of our voices to the coming trainees, to medical students, to high school students is showing them we're all going through this. It doesn't mean it's okay. It means that it's not an implicit level of you. It doesn't show anything about you and your intelligence. And we're going to fight through this. But for right now, we need to fight through it together and be stronger together and don't let it define you. Don't let these interactions, don't let these people who are trying to bring you down or say that you're not enough or say that you're not smart enough. We're holding you to a different standard because we are. We're good enough. We deserve this as much as our male colleagues. We've worked it. I'd like Dr. Moller to explain to us what she what she believes is a pressing issue with fertility and training and what some potential solutions are for that. So uh, in my field, right, in the field of surgery, our trainees spend most of their prime fertile years in training, right? Those women that go into surgery during that time, it's just, surgery can be very long. It can be five, six years, up to nine years if you're doing a fellowship. And those are the most important years when you have the best chances of getting pregnant. Now, obviously, having a family is a personal choice, but we shouldn't make that choosing a specialty will deter you for achieving your goals as a parent. And the problem that we have is that most of the training programs in the country hasn't been family friendly to support pregnant residents because they haven't been implemented policies. There is no enough maternity time leave. They go into a C-section and in, in a month they have to be back working because they have to have certain weeks that they need to complete in order to be able to take the boards, in order to be able to graduate coverage. So it's the expectation of the, of the institution as well as the expectation of the resident. So the message has been for years is don't get pregnant while you're in residence. So what happened? You wait when you finish. Now you are a much older woman. And the data, there's this uh, excellent paper that was published three months ago by Dr. Uh, Rangel up, up north. And it shows that female surgeons has the highest risk of uh, pregnancy complications and miscarriage as compared to other specialties in the general population. Female surgeons. Yeah. And there is good data showing that female physicians suffer higher levels up to, I believe, four times higher than the rest of the population when it comes to infertility. So we are really have a problem here that we don't speak about. We don't talk about this issue. So what we were talking the other day, uh, you know, out of line here was that, that we, it's going to take time for these residency programs to have family friendly policies. But there is a big movement right now, especially with the, the Association of Women Surgeons and other uh, similar organizations when the, there have been a lot of advocacy to make sure that there are pregnancy and parental leave policies. And there are some institutions that are ahead of the curve that already have implemented for the residents. I know, for example, the University of Chicago uh, just implemented for the female attendants that they can 
have uh, decreased the RBU that we use, how they do bill for patients that you see, right? So they can decrease that number that you require during the time that you are breastfeeding. So it can account for the time during that month that you need to breastfeed. That's a huge step forward because that is no taking away the pressure right. from women. So in the other problem is, you know, you go on maternity leaves, you don't have maybe enough time. They only give you eight weeks. You have to take your own personal time vacation because we don't have ourselves, even though we're in the medical field, we don't give enough time to recover and bond with our child, right? So one of the things that is not a solution, but it could empower women to have more options and to have more autonomy with their family planning is the egg freezing. So in during those prime time, if they decide it's not the right timing for them yet to, to have a family, to freeze their eggs. Is that covered by insurance? That's the main problem. No, that it's the, not. There are only, as I recall, only seven states in the United States that will cover it. Massachusetts was one of them. But if it's no a federal law or a state law, it will not be covered. And if you, you know, a surgical resin or any other residence, their salary will not be able to pay for the cost of this because they are very expensive, about $16,000 on average that they need at to least. spend. At least that at they least. need to spend. And so we are not letting, and that's a problem because no, we are- I tell you interns and residents don't have 16K just sitting around. Right. No, absolutely not. So we are not making policies to support, you know, residents to have their family do the training, but we are not even covering for them to have an option to, to at least in the future, maybe able to have a family. Mm -hmm. So number one, I think there is important lobbying that we can do to make sure that health insurance will cover fertility treatments in the States. And I was talking to, to a friend who was saying, well, who will benefit from these things, right? So you need to get support from the industry that will benefit to sponsor these bills. So the companies that prescribe the medications that you will need for your fertility treatment, that could be somebody that you can reach out to, to support these bills. And the same for fertility treatment, because women in these specialties that are long require more fertility services, IBF and inseminations, etc. And not only for women, but also what about uh, same-sex couples that need the services to have a family. Mm -hmm. So we need to mm -hmm. be inclusive of that and, and make sure that they have coverage and that everybody can, you know, have the family that they dream of. I mean, this may sound utopian, but what about the women, the pro-women uh, programs that have demonstrated that they're making, they're taking steps and action towards helping uh, alleviate some of these issues, subsidizing, you know, form a fund or something to subsidize their female trainees to, to have these resources available to them. That's one option. They, they find subsidies for everything else. Why not just include that as part of the budget, you know, to at least subsidize part of the cost. It may be more cost effective just to give them 12 weeks of, mm. of like, right. parental leave than right. it would be. So I can tell you just from a very personal standpoint, um, like, like Becker said, as a resident or a fellow, you don't have the money for it. I'm divorced and I froze my eggs recently, but you don't have the same quality eggs at 36 that you I did at 26. Right. Right. And so you're, and that's you're the doing, time you want to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. And exactly. it may not be the right time for me right now right. in the future, hopefully, but right now it's not. 
But the quality of eggs has significantly diminished because we know that as you get older, your quality of eggs is going to change. And so in your prime reproductive years, you don't have the options for it because it's just not financially feasible. And it is very expensive and not covered by anything, not covered by insurance at all. And I have several co-fellows of mine who have now started families, gone through at least four or five rounds of IVF, which they couldn't do as residents Mm -hmm. or fellows. It's now as attendings all in their mid thirties. But you know what is very interesting is that in other industries, and I know this, uh, there's uh, several companies such as Visa, MasterCard, uh, just to, to give you two examples, that they will cover fertility treatment for the um, for the female uh, workforce. Hmm. But we in the medical field... I think Google does. Don't do it. Google as well is one Apple, of the other, yeah. uh, Apple, Facebook, they actually do cover those so, you know, you have women in position of power. They probably left motherhood for later. They had that option as well to be paid for those services. And is to me mind blowing that we in the medical world, that we know the data, that we know the information. We don't support ourselves, our own physicians or, to have these same opportunities. And how can we expect women to, you know, prosper in leadership in all these roles when we're not supporting them? in so much of family planning and, you know, putting off family if you want to. It's very difficult when you don't have that basis to move up in those ranks. I'm very blessed. So this is a little bit separate. I went to a residency, which was very family friendly. Um, My program director was a godsend. I had my first child when I was a second year resident. And not only my program director, but all of my attendings. I did not fathom the idea that I would be able to breastfeed after coming back to work. I took a 12-week leave. I did make up the three months after. At that point, ACGME did not have the six weeks that you don't have to make up yet. That just came into play about two years ago, I believe. So ACGME did make a change, which is a little bit for the better. It does give a six-week guaranteed um, that you don't have to make back. But I didn't have that. But I made my time back, but I had the option to take it, which not every specialty does. How our board works, it allowed me to. And not only that, but I had attendings that were there and did not push me to, but advocated for me if I wanted to breastfeed. And I was actually able to breastfeed my first child for a full year, pumping during ER shifts. But it's a culture change. It's a change in mentality. It's telling all the older physicians, she is going to go pump now. It's not, can she go pump? And it's important to advocate for yourself. But as a resident, you're so terrified of what the people in power are going to say or how they're going to judge you. Something simple as having the administration provide a facility, a room or some kind of, you know, place for women to, to do that. don't have to go to a dirty hospital public, bathroom. Exactly. Or like I just, use a public office, which most people are doing. They're using, mm-hmm. you know, um, the ICU office, the EM, right? The ED and there's office. like constant traffic there's flowing constant through. traffic. There's no privacy. And you need a fridge. You need, there's more than just a space. You need other things as well, a possibly a sink. You know, there's a lot that goes into it. So making policies that change the emergency department, change your specialties, it's very important because the residents have, appropriately, so there's such a power dynamic, the residents have trouble speaking up for themselves. So yeah. we have to be, the leadership, the attendings, we have to try to make these safe environments for them as well. Whether that means, you know, finding advocacy ways to help them freeze their eggs, make their choices for later, or if they're going to have the families during residency, during training, or even as co-attendings. I'm also very lucky. My program now is female friendly. 
and family friendly. I had my second child. I breastfed for a year as well. I took my maternity leave. When I told my director I was going to be taking, I was pregnant. It wasn't, oh, how are we going to cover you? It was, congratulations. I'm so happy. How can we support you? And we need to say that to each other. How can Absolutely. I support you? Absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, I, I have a lot of hope that there will be changes, especially at the resident levels. This generation, I think, is more in tune to knowing that a lot of things that we did in the past was wrong. And I would say I'm so proud of my residents right now because we came together and we put our maternity leave policy and parental leave. And that is inclusive from the moment that we find out the resident, the, the resident decide to announce that is pregnant to start changing the schedule, accommodating to decrease the workload, accommodate for the time of parental leave and making sure, like you said, is no, oh, can she go breastfeed? She has to breastfeed or she has to be with her child or she cannot be operating for 12 hours today. And I think that having that policy, we were so, so proud. We actually submitted an abstract. We are presenting it in a couple of weeks at the Academic Surgical Congress, like how we were able to implement one of the more, the largest and more complex residency programs in the country. And the model for that were the residents, were them, you know, putting all the hair together, looking at it. It took a lot of work and a lot of, you know, go through a lot of changes to make it happen. But it is possible. And if it can be done at that level, it could be also for the attendees because I have great hope it's going to change residency programs, plan directors are getting the message. But I think once that you become an attending, it's institution dependent. Like you were saying earlier, you don't even have a PTA. So, and then how do you accommodate these other things? Because you are still the same woman. You still are doing, you know, very uh, hard work. and You still want to be a mother. Right. And it's not mandatory in the United States to provide parental leave. It's one of the very few countries that are first world countries that don't provide mandatory parental leave. For example, the company that I work for provides zero parental leave. It'd all be FMLA, which is, which means I'm not making an income, right? And for for us, if we're not working, we're not earning. And so without the RVUs being generated, there's no money coming in. And so you have to really think about that as well. How am I going to, am I going to work extra while I'm pregnant in order to save all this money so that I can take a full 12 weeks. That's stressful to think about how am I going to not work for 12 weeks and still provide for my child and my family, depending on whether or not you have a partner, if that partner makes the same income as you. Maybe you're single. Maybe you're you're doing this journey with somebody who's not currently working. Whatever your story is, it's it's a stressful time. And that's not supposed to be the time in your life where you're supposed to be that stressed. And, and you know what is interesting that if you're an FMLA and you're not working, you are not covered by insurance. So you have to either Good put point. your, you need yeah. to put your uh, vacation time, which is what I did when I had my child. I had a C-section and I needed to, to take a little extra to recover. So I have to put my um, vacation time to make it to the 12th week to be with her. Otherwise, I couldn't afford being no generating income and not having insurance with a newborn. Well, I applaud you for starting the program at your hospital. And I encourage all of our listeners, if you have an interest in starting a support group for the women in healthcare at your institution, you can reach out to Dr. Arshad and Dr. Walker, Dr. Moeller. Friends of Medicine is an advocate for women in medicine. And any opportunities that any of our listeners may have for our female physicians, and our nurses also, anyone in the healthcare field that you know, takes care of patients and lives that face these inevitable challenges based on the system that we have, 
please reach out to us and we will share those resources with our community. I, I would like to wrap up right now by uh, thanking each and every one of you doctors for joining us. And, you know, you can always come and meet any of them at our Friends of Medicine events. Follow us on Instagram. Stay tuned for the next episode that's coming out soon. And I would love to hear what your thoughts are on what we can do to implement some kind of change for our women in healthcare. Thank you for joining us, ladies. And we look forward to having you back on the, on the show next time to discuss more. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.